Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now well i'll start off by saying this do not blame that game on the defense okay i don't care who you play whether it's a high school team a junior college team a college team much less an nfl team when you turn the ball over five times four interceptions one for a touchdown three others in field position to set up touchdowns you ain't gonna beat anybody i just told you about any remember that guy the show will remind our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me james back for another disgraceful performance and let's see who i can give this freaking game away to diaz with you once again and you know it's unfortunate that jim mora wasn't doug peterson or else he maybe would have found a way to win that game but for every win there's a loss and what a special guest we have today it is the man who was on that opposite sideline, the man who saw that incredible collapse by his L.A. Chargers. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's me, Justin Herbert. Uh, <laughs> you know, what the hell is my defense doing? I, I staked them out to such a great lead, and then I should have been able to just go sit in a hot tub for the whole second half and not have to pay attention. And yet, they, they, they threw it away from me. Justin, we brought you in because we figure, look, you're never going to win anything on the Chargers. You might win something on Remember That Guy. I don't know. I can't prove that definitively, but you will never win anything in LA. So why don't we instead see if Diaz has any prizes for us today. Diaz, you got anyone making memories for you? Well, making memories for me, as they have been from across the pond all year, what an incredible week it's been for Newcastle since last we spoke. The secondary headline is a big late winner by Alexander Isak. He's healthy. He's back. The record signing. That's right. Newcastle's been doing all of this all year without our record signing. He's back, gets the game winner against Fulham to keep us in a Champions League spot at the halfway point, which is incredible. But more importantly, in the League Cup, tough back and forth battle with Leicester in the quarterfinals. But in front of the hometown crowd, the hometown boy, Big Dan Byrne, comes in, gets his first goal ever in a Newcastle jersey. And for me, it was especially special because I've told both of you, I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast, but over the summer, I went to a Phillies game and it just so happened the person sitting next to me had a Newcastle jersey on. It just so happens they grew up about 10 minutes away from the stadium. It just so happens they're a season ticket holder for Newcastle. And my boy, David, which David, if you're listening over there, how a, David actually knew Dan Byrne growing up. David's uh, an older gentleman, like in his later 40s, early 50s, I would guess. But it was like, oh yeah, Dan Burns yeah, is one of the kids that would play at the local park. And now here he is playing at St. James and getting a winner to see the Geordies through to their first cup semifinal since 2001. So we're, we're flying high up in the Northeast. Eddie Howe, Eddie Howe's Mag Army. We're going to keep it going. Keep making memories all the way to Wembley. We got the the home and away legs with Southampton, who we are better than and we should beat. But that's why they play the games. I'm not saying anything. But let's keep flying high to Wembley and let's keep <laughs> making memories, Newcastle. Fly, Newcastle, fly. Their basketball team is the Eagles. Have I, have I told you that? 
And they are the best basketball team in all of like England history, like the most decorated. I'm astounded you don't have a Newcastle Eagles jersey. We're going to have to fix this soon. I'm going to work it out with David somehow. I don't know. Well, yeah, we'll get a nice exchange going there. But listen, you know, I I gave you some memories. Now I'm going to need you to go ahead and return that right back to me. I need to know what's making memories for you, James. Well, Diaz, as part of a cultural exchange, there's always been two falls to the Roman Empire at this point. First off, you've got AD 476 when the Germanic tribes finally sacked the last, you know, Western Roman emperor who what we think of classically as the Roman Empire. Then, of course, you've got the fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans in the year 1453, ending the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. And then today, January 19th, 2023, we finally saw the end of the Greg Roman Empire, the reign of terror that he has waged on the greatest offensive player in the history of sport in Baltimore. It's coming to an end. That's right. The 2019 Assistant Coach of the Year. Coaching awards are meaningless. I don't know if I've said this out loud. I've tried maybe not to sometimes because the only things I've ever seen in Orioles anything win is Manager of the Year. But coaching awards are the most meaningless awards that exist in the universe. Greg Roman did a pretty good job of letting Lamar Jackson just be Lamar Jackson for a couple of years there. And then just started getting in front of himself and has just slowly made me realize more and more that the reason that the Ravens won Super Bowl 47 is because in that moment they were coaching against a Greg Roman offense. So that's the only way Greg Roman was ever going to get us a Super Bowl. I wish him the best. I'm glad he's gone. That's making memories for me. I am also thrilled that like WNBA hot soap season is happening right now. Like just that I'm getting any push notifications about the W. I'm so glad, Xavier, that I got to tell you that the Liberty had traded for Jean-Claude Jones. What a delight. And we're going to get Stewie too. It's going to be a fucking incredible big three. It's going to be incredible. I cannot wait to watch you guys losing game five to the Aces in the championship. Right. Uh, Maybe I'll be able to get a, uh, a Sabrina jersey though. If it's split between those three incredible players, all the production, because right now it is still impossible to get a Sabrina Ionescu jersey. Plus, you don't have to seem like as much of a front runner because the front runners will be all the people getting Brianna Stewart Liberty jerseys. <laughs> Sabrina Ionescu will become a little bit hipper as one should be as a Brooklyn ball player. No, it's just really cool. It's going to be a great season. I do look forward to the Aces' second consecutive championship. And then the last thing that I would like to touch on, if you are someone that likes looking up a bunch of stupid things on Wikipedia, you will notice that it just underwent its first UI change in like 12 years. It has gone from Vector which they debuted in 2010 to Vector 2022. I hate it. I hate it. I'm a fan. I have to say, I'm a fan. Uh, I'm not afraid of change. It's a new, bold, and exciting direction for Wikipedia. Blank space. There's a lot of it. Uh, no, genuinely, I really like the new Wikipedia redesign, so I'm excited just to be on there more. No, I have it up right now. I'm, I'm a big fan of having the, the tabs on the left. As far as, you know, you can click, go through like the different sections as opposed to having to go all the way back up to find the taking section. Taking the very best element of Wikipedia mobile and bringing it into the website. Mwah. Chef kiss. Absolutely perfect. Uh, I guess I'll have to be the outlier here because I do not like it. I, I don't like change. Well, Xavier, is there anything you do like? Because, uh, I mean, after all, we've made our exchanges about change. I'd like to hear who might be making memories for you. You know, I, I got a couple things. I'm gonna, I'll start with the good one first. The NWSL draft was last week, and Alyssa Thompson became the first ever player drafted directly out of high school. And she was the number one overall pick. 
And she's already a U.S. senior international with two caps, despite not having been a professional soccer player yet. The NWSL is expanding and looking fantastic, and the talent level is just incredible. And, you know, I hope that Alyssa Thompson has a fantastic career for Angel City and also for the U.S. women's national team. But I also hope that the NWSL had the draft in Philly at the convention center give Philadelphia a team because they do not have one yet. And once again, I am begging, give Philly women's sports. We need a WNBA team. We need an NWSL team. This is the thing, Xavier. I fear like we've, Diaz has spoken at length about how he needs this to exist. And now we're splitting our efforts. We don't have so much power that we can divert it in all these different streams. I feel like the NWSL will expand quicker because that's what they want to do, even if a WNBA team might be more stable. You know, I- I'm still going to be greedy. I want both. I'll support both. I don't support any Philly teams. I would support those two, even I mean, if I do that- love the Liberty. With that reigning endorsement, I mean, if if the NWSL Philly team is the one team that could exist that could get Xavier and I to root for the same team, I am willing to temporarily suspend my efforts. Kathy Engelbert, you are no longer on notice for the time being. NWSL president, whose name I do not know, <laughs> you're going to learn it very soon. And then you are on notice, and you're going to be in a lot of trouble until you give Philadelphia a team. I feel bad now because it's not that both shouldn't exist. I just don't know how many petitions we're going to be able to get signed. No, that's, that's totally fine. Kathy, you get like a couple months off. It's okay. I will be harassing you again soon. But for now, no, we'll, we'll, talk to, we'll talk to Jessica Berman. For now, Jessica Berman. Hello. Hi. Justin Diaz. Remember that guy podcast here. Um, you're going to remember this guy when he is harassing you every single day until you do what is right. You stop committing these war crimes against the city of Philadelphia. You stop depriving us of what we need, which is women's sports. Most of that seems pretty safe to put on on audio. There were no direct or tangible threats made. Xavier knows nothing that I said would hold up in court. (laughs) Well, in, in other women's soccer news going across the pond, have either of you heard of Sarah Bjork? Is there any relation to Bjorn? Or to Bjork. No, I don't think so. So Sarah Bjork is a professional women's soccer player who currently plays for Juventus as a midfielder. But previously, she has played for two of the biggest women's teams in the world, Wolfsburg and also Olympic Lyon, who I have talked about on this podcast before. She's also the captain of the Icelandic national team. And Sarah Bjork is in the news recently because of a landmark case that was the ruling just happened a couple days ago in early 2021 while playing for Lyon Sarah became pregnant after playing you know as long as she could she decided to return home to Iceland when the doctor said it was no longer safe for her to play anymore to have her child and then Lyon stopped paying her they said since you're not playing we can't give you any money FIFA had just changed their regulations just a little bit before that, say that, no, you have to pay women's players you know, for maternity leave because, duh, you should have to do that. Not working is a great French tradition. And so FIFPRO, who we learned about during our talk about Bosman, worked with Sarah to sue Lyon. And you know what? The courts agreed with Sarah. 
and said that Lyon had to pay her entire back salary of 82,000 euros plus interest or face a transfer ban because not only did they not pay her, they never checked in on her once while she was in Iceland. They never were like, hey, how you doing? How's the baby? Hope having a child went well. They just ignored that she existed and then tried to ignore her contacting them to figure out what the hell's going on. And then in a kind of messed up thing, a currently owned women's player also just had a kid, but she's French and they, they've been outspoken about supporting her and put out a statement after this uh, ruling saying French law was restrictive and we couldn't actually give her any money because of French law. But if she wants to work with us to change the law, we'd be happy to do that. It's like, fuck are you talking about? She's happy at Juventus now. She got her money. She got the ruling. And women's teams in Europe have to pay their players if they go on maternity leave. It is no longer a, a regulation without teeth. It can be court-ordered, and teams can be forced to do it or face punishment. So, you know, good on Sarah for not taking that lying down against a very large and powerful team and getting what she's owed. I did have one other thing I wanted to talk about, though. Also soccer, and there's a bit of drama here. A bit of background. There is a soccer player named Alejandro Zendejas. He's 24 years old. He was born in Juarez, but grew up in El Paso. He was an FC Dallas homegrown, played with the U.S. under-17s. He actually was with the U.S. under-17s at the under-17 World Cup in 2015. He played with Christian Pulisic and Tyler Adams. You know, he was considered almost just as good as those guys. But he eventually leaves MLS to go back to Mexico and plays in the Mexican League and switches to playing for Mexico. So he gets called up for the Mexican under-21s and then gets his first senior call-up in October of 2021 playing against Ecuador. Then last year, there was a um, bit of inquiry into his eligibility. So there was a report that Mexico tried to get him to sign a piece of paper saying that he was eligible to play for Mexico and that he would never play for the U.S. or have any sort of interest in the U.S. again. Just like a little piece of paper. Like, wait, why would you have to do that if he's already playing for you? Because he would have been required to file a one-time switch with FIFA to play for you in the first place since he already played competitively for the U.S. at the under-17 level. Turns out... Never this did that. This sounds like the IM12 from Benchwarmers <laughs> is what they tried to do. Yeah, essentially. They, they, they essentially tried to do like the IM12, but I am eligible to play for Mexico. So, and so he's not? No, he's not. Does he meet the initial base requirements and has just never done the paperwork? Yes. Okay. So the way FIFA regulations work, if you play a competitive match for a team at the youth level or less than three friendlies at the senior level, if you want to switch to another national team, you have to file an official switch you can only do once with FIFA. And Zendejas never did that because Mexico never told him he had to. And he just was like, I'll just decide who I want to play with and switch between the USA and Mexico if I feel like it. And so... Once Mexico realized he never did this, they tried to get him to retroactively sign something to lie and say he did it. But he refused. 
And then so today, Mexico, they, they get a punishment from FIFA that every game that he's ever appeared in for Mexico is an automatic forfeit and they get fined. And also they're very lucky in that if they had ever played him in a World Cup qualifier, they would have been banned from the next World Cup or fielding an eligible player in World Cup in, in, in a World Cup qualification match. And to put insult to injury, he just accepted a call up to the U.S. and will be playing with the U.S. at the January camp and is officially only going to be playing for the U.S. from now on. Wow. Way to fumble the bolsa there, Mexico. Damn. <laughs> also, Mexico got fined 100,000 pounds and, and for a game for homophobic chants uh, at the World Cup. So just a very bad back, week Mexico. for Mexico. <laughs> very bad week for Mexico. But... Another episode in the latest line of dual national drama between the USA and Mexico, which has been going on for years at this point. I just want to say, too, because like, I, I feel like this is vaguely related. Like That's not quite a betrayal that you just spoke about, but I'm, I'm thinking of like novellas. Like, how has there not been a telenovela that has been made on the premise that you described? And it would also be great fodder for this category we have this week. Speaking of drama... I'm a big fan of sporting drama, and that's what I wanted to talk about this week. Guys who were at the center of, you know, major interpersonal drama or betrayals. So think of the Shaq and Kobe feud, which is so large that it has its own Wikipedia page and rap songs with diss tracks. It has its own Wikipedia page that looks brand spanking new, baby. Yes. (laughs) There's one story I discovered that I thought is, you know, a perfect encapsulation of this. I'm about to take you both the fierce world of ice dancing. And this is the story of Maya Yusova. So we're not doing Kerrigan. We are not doing Kerrigan and Harding, although their timing overlaps like at the same Olympics, but different disciplines of ice skating. There's a lot of heat all over that ice. Yeah, things are weird when it comes to ice skating. There's, there's a lot of drama there. I mean, if you just want to look at the most recent one with the Russian girls... You know, we're all angry at each other and crying because of years of abuse trying to make them the best and hate all of each other. There's weird stuff with, with skating. Maya Yusova uh, was born on May 22nd, 1964 in Gorky, in the Russian SFSR of the Soviet Union. Gorky, which is now known as Nizhny Novgorod, uh, is a major sports city, specifically ice sports with teams of both the KHL and the Bandy Super League. I don't know if you two know about Bandy, but it's essentially a weirder version of hockey with a ball. Yeah, yeah, it's hockey with a ball. But young Maya took to the ice at an early age for a different sport, figure skating. And by the age of nine, she had moved to Moscow to train with coach Natalia Dubova. Coach Dubova had her shift her focus to ice dancing which was about to make its Olympic debut. Eventually, at the age of 15, uh, after having trained with Dubov for six years, Maya gets paired with a 16-year-old named Alexander Zhulin, otherwise known as Sasha. Real quick, I want to give a brief rundown on the difference between ice dancing and other skating disciplines, because they are different. Singles figure skatings, at least now, there are two programs, a short program and a free skate. He focuses on performing jumps, spins, and, you know, other required techniques while balancing, trying to time things up to a backing musical track. But it's mostly now, at least nowadays, about the technical elements and less about the artistry. Pairs utilizes male and female partners who also have to do, you know, jumps and spins. 
but it also adds in overhead lifts and throws while requiring the pairs to do, you know, combinations side by side in unison, stuff like that. On the other hand, ice dancing, while also done with a male-female pair, instead has a focus on step sequences. It's based on ballroom dancing and the two major elements, at least nowadays, the rhythm dance and the free dance require lifts, step sequences, dance patterns performed in time to a song that they're choosing. It's a much more expressive form of figure skating and requires innovative choreography and impeccable timing with a goal more of entertainment than showing off difficult tricks. If I, my very basic understanding is no jumps. It's, yes. it's figure skating with no jumps. Literally dancing on the ice. It, it, that's what it is. And to keep things from being confusing, the time period that we're talking about, there are actually four dances in the major tournaments. There's what they call the two compulsory dances, which are everyone's supposed to do essentially kind of like the same thing. An original dance and a free dance. Maya and Sasha train relentlessly 10 plus hours a day for five years before making their international debut at the Universiade Games in Belluno, Italy in 1985, which they win. As you may expect from two people who spent five plus years together every single day for 10 plus hours a day, you either end up hating each other or loving each other. And in this case, it was the latter as Maya and Sasha got married in 1986. They continued train, and eventually in 1988, a full eight years after they started training together, they make their European Championships debut in Prague. They finish tied for third, but they lose out on a medal due to tiebreakers. Next year, they come back and they finish second to fellow Soviet pair Marina Klimova and Sergei Ponomarenko, getting the silver. Two months later at the World Championships, they again finish second behind the same pair and get the silver. For the next three years, they medaled in three straight World and European Championships. And then they're finally ready to represent their nation at the 92 Olympics at Albertville. And then the Soviet Union collapses. <laughs> so, the Soviet Union dissolves in December of 1991. The 92 Olympics are the beginning of February 1992. So an Olympic team gets quickly cobbled together in the two months in between that. What was then called the Unified Team is made up of Russians, Ukrainians, Kazakhs, Belarusians, and Uzbeks. Among this hodgepodge of athletes, Maya and Sasha do get a chance to go. At this point, the medal favorites were Maya and Sasha, Lomova and Pomeranko, and the French brother-sister team of Paul and Isabel Duchesnay. Are not great for Maya and Sasha, and not just because, you know, the country that they were born in no longer longer exists. (laughs) There were rumors of Sasha's infidelity during their Olympic preparation. And as if he wanted to be caught, he took off his wedding ring and gave it to his mistress, Oksana Pasha Grischuk, who was also a Russian ice dancer competing in the Olympics, who was also coached by Dubova. Pasha wore the ring attached to a chain around her neck during the compulsory dance for the whole world to see. People's marital business is their business, but that is incredibly rude by two of those individuals. As you may expect, Maya was really, really pissed. Yeah. Confronted confronted Sasha. You're, You're pissing someone off that is going to be within 
inches of you with razor-sharp blades attached to one of their limbs. Forced him to retrieve the wedding ring and also allegedly punched Pasha in the face. Despite her anger, Maya wasn't sure if she would ever get, you know, an Olympic chance again. So she continues to skate with Sasha, and they do get the bronze behind Klimova and Ponomarenko and the Dushanes, finishing one spot ahead of Pasha and her partner Evgeny Platov. A few months later, you know, again, remember, they all train together because they all have the same coach, Dubova. And so they're in L.A. at a training stop, and... Maya spots Pasha and Sasha drinking together at Wolfgang Puck's Spago in Beverly Hills. She proceeds to go in, grab Pasha's hair, and smash her head against the top of a bar, causing a massive brawl. Maya gets charged with assault and battery. The charges are later dropped after Dubova sends Pasha away back to Moscow. <laughs> the reason why Dubova sends Pasha away... Asha is very defiant about this. She makes fun of Maya for taking two years to realize that her husband was cheating on her and says, quote, people like her are jealous. I'm a pretty woman with the whole world in front of me while taking no accountability for the fact that she was part of ruining this person's marriage. It wasn't her marriage. I mean, <laughs> why, why is it her responsibility? <laughs> so Debova, having coached Maya for 20 years at this point, sympathetic to her and talking about not wanting to see her cry, sends Pasha back to Moscow. Maya and Sasha, you know, they try to work things through, and they continue to compete together. Whether this is because Maya really thought they could make things work, or whether it's just after 13 years of being a pair, it'd probably be extremely difficult to find another ice dancing partner. Regardless, they do then have their best year ever in 93. They won the European Championships in Helsinki in January, and then the World Championships in Prague in March for their first ever gold medals. They beat Pasha and Platov both times. They finished second both times. But Pasha is still openly flirting with Sasha whenever they're in the same place and trying to, to sabotage them. Again, just the flagrance of all of this, like, in her face, in your... Co- have some respect for your coach. All right, so listen to this. Uh, this is a direct quote uh, from Russian journalist Yelena Vaitsoskaya. Oksana told me last year she's going to marry Alexander Zulin. I think her main aim is to make Maya nervous. So her main aim is not to, to marry him. It's just no, to it's the troll, make her nervous. It's the, tr- it's the troll and Maya. marrying him is the simplest path to that. Yeah, it, it, she's just trying to destroy her. And as an aside, I should say Maya is not the only person to hate Pasha. Over the years, Pasha fought American skater Nicole Bobek in a hotel lobby, intentionally collided with fellow Russian ice dancer Angelika Krilova during practice, had her aunt fake being a journalist to sneak into a press conference to talk shit to opponents instead of asking them questions, called Oksana Bayul a criminal, fat, and washed up, which is also the reason why she changed her name to Pasha to avoid being mistaken for her. Pasha has, like, delusions of grandeur. To be fair, she's very talented. But she thinks that the whole world revolves around her and also wants to be like a Hollywood star and believes that she's entitled to pretty much everything. That no one else matters. Between all of this and like Carrick and Harding happening at roughly the same time, man, figure skating was like very hardcore. Yes. <laughs> Things changed a bit in the summer of 1993 uh, when the International Skating Union, the ISU, enacted a new rule that 
considerably restricted the choice of music for the free dance. Under this new rule, acceptable music must have a rhythmic beat and a melody and must be arranged and orchestrated for use on the dance floor. It caused mass confusion and unhappiness among ice dancers, their coaches and choreographers, especially among older competitors who had been skating the same way for decades. The practical effect of this is it made it impossible to create a free dance to classical music, which is what a lot of the top competitors had been using. Essentially, ISU wanted ice dancing to be, you know, sprightly and charming instead of dramatic and angst-ridden uh, was the terms used. They wanted it essentially to be peppy and for a younger crowd than old-fashioned. They were like telling the sport to smile more, basically. Yes. Hey, honey, come was on, give big, us a smile. It was a big positive for essentially anyone under 25 and terrible for everyone over 25. We'll say Pasha was under 25 and Maya was over 25 at this point. So Maya and Sasha had planned on creating a routine for the 94 Olympics set to Rashmaninoff. Instead, they had to totally scrap their choreography and their musical music, uh, choice and switch to something else. Lilyhammer, 94 Olympics. They're in first after the first three skates going to the free dance. Unfortunately, they never truly perfected their new free dance under these new rules. Despite a clean program, it wasn't considered that technically difficult, and they finished second. Pasha and Platov finished first and passed them to win the gold. As you can expect, the mood on the podium was not very good. I, if you're going to get to it, I trust you, but like, I still have to know how Platov feels about being you, you will hear. this you will hear. bizarre fourth wheel involved in this whole situation. So... After the Olympics, Maya and Sasha turned professional and toured with champions on ice, but they reached the breaking point and officially divorced in 1995. Sasha would later say that the whole marriage had been a sham to get a free apartment from the Soviet government, but Maya denies this, and it really seems like just a way for Sasha to feel less guilty over constantly cheating on his wife, so don't really believe him on that one. They do still continue to skate together for another two years just because of how difficult it is to find new partners. So they've officially gotten divorced and still compete for two more years together. But eventually, it's just Maya's had enough and she breaks off their partnership. 97, Maya's not really doing anything. And I want to say that this is all according to Pasha. And there's a good chance it's completely made up because she's made up a lot of things. Pasha says that in 97, Maya shows up to where her and Platov were preparing for the 98 Olympics. We wait outside the rink every single day for months, just cursing out Pasha and blowing smoke in her face from her cigarettes. It's possible that this happened because Maya does hate Pasha a lot, but it also could be totally made up because Pasha has made up other things. It, it sounds a bit exaggerated. But she would not be in the It room. may have happened once. It may, there's a chance it may have happened once and Pasha just said she did it every single day. It seems very on brand for an angry Russian who is mad that her house was broken. Specifically like an angry Russian gymnast, ballerina, or ice skater. So it, there's a chance it happened once or twice, but it would not surprise me if Pasha was exaggerating a ton. But things come full circle in 98. There's this event called the World Professional Figure Skating Championships. It doesn't happen anymore, but it happened for about 30 years. It was essentially a made-for-TV event for people who had already turned pro. 
was created by Dick Button, wasn't a true championship until 98, where it gets sanctioned by the ISU as a full pro-am event. Maya, needing a partner, calls Genny Platov. Platov had grown exhausted of dealing with Pasha. So he says, I'm in. James? Continue. Yes, no, uh, I'm happy. I'm glad that he's escaping a partner that is committed enough to winning that they will not practice with their actual partner, but instead just try and break up a marriage so as to frazzle a rival. He deserves someone more dedicated to the craft. So in an interview before the event, the pair said that they felt continually betrayed and discounted by their star-seeking former partners. Maya said that you know, not only did Sasha cheat on her all the time, but also frequently told her that she was worthless. Quote, last spring, I decided to kill myself because I have so many problems in my head. I have 15 times been treated for depression. So many days when I cry, all of my problems was my old partner. Meanwhile, Platov said that Pasha was just obsessed with becoming a movie star and said after they won the gold at the 98 Olympics, which was their second ever gold, Pasha told him, you're really not good enough. You're just like a hanger for my dress. Platov goes on to say, Pasha gave me 20% of the credit and Sasha gave Maya zero. Now we want to show them we are not garbage cans. We are good enough. But Sasha and Pasha, you know, don't feel like taking this lying down. So they decide to team up and compete at this event as well. Maya and Platov get the last laugh because they upset their old partners by putting up a perfect score and winning the competition. I mean, I feel most happy for Platov because he's kind of just been awkwardly standing there holding the purse like, okay, is, are we... Oh, uh, no, don't start yelling again. No. And he finally gets glory. He had his own wife for most of this and still was essentially being cucked by Pasha. I had to know immediately if there was like a Soviet or Russian word for soap opera, and there isn't. But I did find out with an incredibly cursory search that they are huge fans of Spanish-style telenovelas and that those do have an incredibly huge market in Russia. So I'm glad to know that they have gotten some <laughs> of the real stuff in their lives too. This is, I think, what primed the market for the Spanish-speaking telenovela crowd to move into the Russian economy. Maya and Platov only skate together for another two more years before Maya retired. Decades of high-intensity training and also decades of smoking and injuries meant that Maya really couldn't compete much anymore. In a later interview, you know, she said that her only skating regret was not ditching Sasha to partner with Platov after 92. She was convinced that if the two of them had just worked together away from their toxic partners, they probably would have won both golds and not had a ton of drama. But that overall, she's still happy with her career. Since then, she's you know, moved back to, to Russia. She kind of splits her time between Russia and the U.S., although maybe not currently. Ended up getting married to a Russian professor of medicine uh, that she met through a Russian team doctor when they invited her to do a program at the 2005 World Championships, but was super injured and really couldn't do it. <laughs> but it worked out because she met her husband that way. And, you know, overall, it seems like doing a lot better now than in the 90s when her husband was continuously cheating on her with her rival who was publicly mocking her. 
I will, I think, later on look back on season five fondly as the Cold War season. And I have to say, of all of the random things that we have brought up related to the Cold War, I did not expect a weird love quadrangle ice dancing story. <laughs> Absolutely delectable. I really wanted to bring this story, so I'm glad that I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Well, we love the story of that rivalry. I would like to hear the origin of a new rivalry, if it's all right with you. And I think that's going to be between our girl Maya, that Xavier's just proposed, and whomever you, Diaz, have ready for us today. Right. Well, I think whenever we think of the great modern betrayals, especially in basketball, there's one obvious one that everybody immediately comes to mind. Obviously, I'm talking about a kid that comes from a small town. But he would eventually grow to have some great hype. And when the Cavaliers selected him, he immediately proved to be just as good as they could have hoped and possibly even better, which is kind of crazy to think. He made some promises to Cleveland, and these were not promises that were kept. This is a player that chose to take his talents elsewhere. And everybody remembers the famous letter that the Cavaliers owner wrote when this player finally did betray Cleveland really reflected the passion that owner had for his city. Uh, Some might have said it was a little bit of a petty letter, but personally, I understood where the owner was coming from. I'm talking about, obviously, the man that many people argue, not me, but a lot of people would argue is the greatest basketball player of all time. To come from Juneau, Alaska, um, I'm talking about not an alcoholic, but he is a boozer. He's Carlos Boozer. (laughs) From... No, he's clearly not going to do LeBron James too. Is he doing Tristan Thompson to I've completely lost the plot through that entire thing. I thought we were going to go through like Tristan Thompson's many extramarital betrayals all of a sudden. Well, that would have been several. I mean, I don't think we would have taken up the rest of season five if we wanted to go down that line with Tristan Thompson. So we're not going to do that. But we are going to focus on one of the, the lesser talked about, but most impactful potentially betrayals in the history of the NBA committed by one Carlos Boozer. Carlos Boozer was born November 20th, 1981, but he wasn't born in Juneau. Uh, he was actually born on a military base in Aschaffenburg, West Germany. <laughs> good, good work on the pronunciation. Apologies to any Aschaffenburgians or Aschaffenburgers. Whatever you call yourselves, I know it's not what I just said, so I'm really sorry about that. It's um, Aschen Royales with cheese. Yeah, of course, of course. But... One person that proved to be basketball royalty very quickly uh, up in Alaska was Carlos Boozer. He's dominant in high school, playing in, obviously, I mean, Alaska, not really a basketball hotbed, right? Anybody over 6'5 is probably going to dominate. But Carlos Boozer really dominates. He leads the Juno Douglas Crimson Bears to back-to-back state titles his junior and senior year. And he's also named a back-to-back Parade All-American for both his junior and senior seasons. Just out of curiosity, is the family now living in Alaska because of a military base? Or did they choose to go to Alaska from West Germany? Which also, hey, another Cold War reference. I I think that's really what it was, is that they, they felt that Cold War tie and they wanted to go somewhere that was cold. So they committed to go to Juneau, Alaska. No, in all seriousness, to my understanding, this was just like where the family ended up. Far be it from me to besmirch. I, I do like the mental picture of probably like a six five six six high school junior Carlos Boozer crushing a bunch of five eight white guys. I mean, it could be a hotbed, right? Who knows? But it, it certainly was a state that was dominated by Carlos Boozer. 
So much so that not only does he get that back-to-back All-American, all the top programs are looking to recruit him. St. John's and UCLA are among the schools that made offers to him, and, and they got close, but ultimately it was Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, and the Duke Blue Devils that earned the services of Carlos Boozer. And obviously, I mean, this is late 90s, early 2000s Duke is post the height of Duke, but still Duke at just about as good as it gets. They're consistently competing for national championships, and Carlos Boozer immediately stepped in and was a contributing player for those teams. Across 101 games in three seasons, he's going to start 93 of those. His first two seasons, he's going to average 13.2 points and 6.4 rebounds. And as a sophomore, Duke's going to win the national title. He was one of five Duke players on that team to make it to the NBA. And I think this is just really a great collection of guys to round out the starting five of Duke guys from that team. So you had Carlos Boozer. Starting point guard, Jay Williams. Mm-hmm. Starting two guard, Chris Duhon. The three man, Mike Dunleavy. And, Ooh, yes. And it's a fun team. I'm almost there. And your other starting forward, Shane Battier. Oh, <laughs> that's a really fun team. I enjoy that. I mean, that's a starting five just chock full of guys. And coming off of this, uh, going into junior year, now it's kind of Carlos Boozer's team. He's going to take over as the main guy. And Duke is ranked number one in the country going into the tournament. Boozer, his averages climb full five points to 18.2 points a game. And he's averaging 8.7 boards. He's named first team all ACC. Duke's rolling along. They, they crushed in the first weekend. Start the Sweet 16. They're up 42-29 going into the half against Indiana. But they lose a heartbreaker, 74-73. They blow that 13-point halftime lead. And Carlos Boozer and Duke Blue Devils are knocked out in the Sweet 16 of his junior year. Now, he's only three classes away from graduating. He's been a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, Carlos has always been a bit of a smarter guy. But in spite of that, being so close to graduation, he thinks it's time to go pro. He thinks he has a chance to get drafted fairly highly in the NBA draft. So he forgoes his senior year, and he enters the draft. Now, you would think, first-team ACC, won a national title two years ago, shows this improvement. You would think that he would be potentially a lottery pick. Yeah, he's clearly got that uh, Alaskan Husky in him. That Alaskan Husky is apparently not what they're looking for in the first round of the NBA draft, not even the lottery. He falls all the way to 35, where the Cavaliers do take Carlos Boozer. Rookie year. Solid rookie season. He averages 10 points and 7.5 boards and is named to the second team, all rookie team. For any second round pick, that's a fantastic achievement. Exactly. Yeah, for an early second round pick, he's already off to a great start. And his second year, he's going to make that rookie season look like nothing because he's going to improve his points per game to 15.5 and he's going to average 11.4 boards. So as a second round guy coming out uh, in his second season, he's already averaging a double-double. This is a Cleveland team that still hasn't made the playoffs. But in that second season, this was LeBron's rookie year. So you're looking at a team that in that second season finished just one game out of the playoffs, despite starting, I believe, 5-16. and 16. So they came on late in that season, just weren't quite able to make the playoffs, miss it just by one game. But if you're a Cleveland Cavaliers fan, you're looking at, we got LeBron James, Carlos Boozer's developing. He looks like he could be a great complimentary piece next to LeBron. That's the duo that you're looking forward. That's kind of what you're projecting. 
Cleveland also, the, the, the ownership, the management, this is what they're foreseeing as well. When they signed Carlos Boozer, it was a three-year deal, but the third year was a team option. And of course, with this being a second round draft pick, he's not getting paid a ton, right? He's, uh, I think his annual salary was about 500000 600000 You know, fair compensation for a second rounder, but clearly Carlos, after these two years, he's already proven that he's worth much more than that. So it comes to the middle of January when the Cavaliers have to decide if they want to pick up this option or not. They're having conversations with Carlos and with his agent. And basically they're saying like, look, we could just pick up this option, but if you're willing to trust us and make a commitment to us, we're willing to make a commitment to you. We can't sign the extension now, but if we're both on the same page here, we have every intention of offering you the most amount of money that we are legally allowed to, which is to be very clear, six years and forty-one million. A little less. Than see, that seems like that seems like a pittance compared to. Uh, I to mean, mid two thousands. That's that's a very Atlanta baseball team contract. Where, like, I mean, it's 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 good value in case something goes wrong. It's fair compensation for a while, but yeah, you could probably get more. It is good, but again, to be perfectly clear, by the NBA cap rules at the time, this is the maximum amount that they are allowed to offer. So they're, they're, they're trying to do the best that they can. Carlos Boozer and his agent basically say, yep, you know, look, we're on the same page. We love Cleveland. We love playing with LeBron. We see a great potential future here. So with nothing on paper, but with this mutual understanding that, hey, we can't offer you the contract now, but the contract will come. They go through the rest of the season. As I mentioned, finishes one game out of the playoffs, but things are looking good. The only problem is when Boozer hits free agency, the Jazz actually have a lot of money available. They're going to offer Carlos six years, $70 million. So not quite double, but very close to double. That's a lot more. You do have to factor into the living in Utah penalty. There is a tax there, but Cleveland, of all cities, is one that is positioned least to benefit from that juxtaposition. They, they are better. Oh, man. The, from what I hear, the Mormons are pretty rough. Yeah, but if you're really rich, you probably don't have to care that much about what the Mormons say or do. Hey, Donovan Mitchell is looking pretty happy having left Utah for Cleveland, is all I'm saying. Well. I'm sorry, I do, I do not mean to digress from the point. Well, no, so we're going to, th- this is going to create the, the opposite of a Donovan situation here. The money's better in Utah. Carlos Boozer is going to follow the money, and he's going to take that six-year, $70 million deal that the Jazz are offering. This is a betrayal of the worst kind to Cleveland Cavaliers owner Gordon Gund. Gordon Gund is the owner before Dan Gilbert, but I, I alluded to that letter in, in my little winding intro that was like supposed to be everything could also apply to LeBron. The letter that Gordon Gund writes addressing the Cleveland Cavaliers fans makes the Dan Gilbert letter look like a best wishes to LeBron on his future endeavors. <laughs> and the, the most simple metric that I can give of this is the amount of words in each letter. Now, Dan Gilbert's letter to the Cavaliers when LeBron James left for Miami was 421 words. Gordon Gunn's letter was 998 words long to the Cleveland Cavaliers fan base. You, come on, you gotta add one more fuck you in there just to get to a thousand. There you go, there's your two words. Not concise, but also too concise. 
Well, the thing is, while this letter is longer, it is actually much more coherent than Dan Gilbert's. I know you guys think of Dan Gilbert as just the pinnacle of concise and literate and coherent <laughs> conversation <laughs> and writing, but Gordon Gunn's letter is actually pretty well put together. His opening line cuts right to your soul. I know last week's developments with respect to Carlos Boozer are a source of extreme disappointment for you. I want to assure you that I feel exactly the same way. Like you, I believed in Carlos. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Several days have now gone by. This has helped me to gain perspective. I hope this letter will do the same for you. Firstly, he wants to take the heat off of Jim Paxson, who is the GM. He says, this wasn't Jim Paxson's decision to not pick up the one-year option. This is my decision. Up until late last week, when the trust was broken, I believed in Carlos Boozer, the player, and Carlos Boozer, the person. That is why I tried to do what he said he wanted. We tried to do right by him, by the team, and by you, in trusting in his repeated insistence that if we showed him respect, he would show respect to us. Gordon Gunn then summarizes basically the, the sequence of events as I've laid them out. You know, December, winter, blah, blah, blah. They come together. Are we going to make a commitment? Okay, we can't make an offer. Carlos, his wife, and his agent, all of whom were in that room, knew what our maximum ability would be to pay him. Both Carlos and his wife responded that they wanted financial security now and therefore were anxious to pursue the second option of entering into a long-term contract with us as soon as possible, and they would live with any consequences from this decision. Carlos had told Jim and me repeatedly, if you show respect for me, I will show respect for you. Now we're at free agency. In the June 30th meeting, I reminded him of that and said, we are all counting on what you said in earlier meetings and again today. He responded, that's right, and you can trust me on that. I asked if we could all trust each other. Carlos, his wife, and agent each responded, yes. At that point, believing so strongly in Carlos, I said we would not pick up his option. Our intent, as soon as we could do so, was to redo his contract. The quotes you saw in the media July 1st about his desire to remain here were entirely consistent with what he told us. In the final analysis, I decided to trust Carlos and show him the respect he asked for. He did not show that trust and respect in return. That's what happened. I wanted you to hear it directly from me. The decision was mine, and I take full responsibility. Did he have to pay for a two-page ad for this? Like, did he have to spill over into a second page in the newspaper? I'm not sure if it was taken out in the newspaper. I believe it was, it's posted still on NBA.com on the team's, like, website. True, this is the internet age. Yeah, what am I thinking? They could do that. But it is, it is still, like, an NBA link. It's still on the NBA website. This letter still exists. I encourage you to read it in its entirety. It's my second favorite letter in basketball history behind the Sam Hankey resignation letter. <laughs> that one's a much more religious text. It truly is. And I mean, and Sam Hankey also ripped off 13 pages on that, which is just fantastic. But this has been now a betrayal. And people don't talk about it enough because if Carlos Boozer stayed in Cleveland, if he signed that six-year deal. He's there all the way through up until LeBron hits free agency to potentially go to Miami. That 2007 team against the Spurs, I'm not saying they win that series, but they probably don't get swept. They, if they, they have definitely don't get swept. I give them at least two games. Yeah, I mean, 
if Eric Snow wasn't the second best player on that team, that's all I'm saying. Carlos Boozer <laughs> instead of Eric Snow is the second best player. They got a chance. I mean, truly, who knows? It's it's one of those butterfly effect moments, butter guy effect, as we've said many times on here before. Where the whole landscape of the NBA today could be entirely different if Carlos Boozer had chosen to sign that contract. While Gordon Gunn didn't attempt to put any hexes on Carlos Boozer like Gilbert did in his letter to LeBron, nonetheless, Carlos Boozer at first does seem to be somewhat hexed while he's in Utah. But he's not going there quite yet. This is the 2003-2004 offseason. And first... He's going to go over to Athens because he's going to be on Team USA for the 2004 oh, no. <laughs> Really don't have to say much about this. This is, of course, the team that won the bronze medal. This is, of course, the team that got absolutely blown out by Puerto Rico in their first game in the Olympics. WEPA. Everybody remembers that. And there's nothing else really I need to say about that other than that Puerto Rico beat Carlos Boozer's ass in the 2004 Olympics. <laughs> he was healthy while he was in the Olympics, but once... It came time to go to Utah. His first two seasons are kind of marred by injury. And he's kind of now has like a thing where like the owners of the teams that he plays for aren't really happy with him. So obviously Gordon Gunn felt entirely betrayed. And after his first season, uh, the jazz owner, Larry Miller, would publicly call out his effort level to the newspapers. So the grass isn't always greener. He could have just stayed in Cleveland. But um he would actually later go on to have like a, a, a very good relationship with Larry Miller. Should be said for the record. They, they are totally cool now. But that first year, Larry Miller, none too happy with them. After those first two seasons, though, 06-07, he's starting to get more comfortable. The Jazz are going to start 11-1. This is also going to be Darren Williams' second season with the Jazz. So starting to have an actual 1-2 there, as opposed to Boozer being really the only player worth anything. They start 11-1. Carlos Boozer is named Player of the Week for the first week of the NBA season. And he's also going to be seeing his way into the playoffs for the first time. Their first round series, they're going against the Rockets, which is that famous Mikial Rockets dynasty. Uh, and they actually put together an epic first round series. It goes seven. And in game seven, Carlos Boozer puts up 35-14, and 14, including two clutch free throws in the last minute, which helped them to clinch game seven. The next round, they go against the We Believe Warriors. Uh, that was the eight-seed Baron Davis team that knocked off the 67-win Dallas Mavericks. Those Warriors wouldn't go to the Western Conference Finals because they were knocked out by the Jazz. So now for the first time since the dickhead era of John Stockton and Paul <laughs> Malone, the Utah Jazz are going to make it to the Western Conference Finals. They are going to get gentlemen swept by James. The Spurs. 0607 Spurs, yes. I'm I'm also it's just wild to remember that only about 15 years ago were the We Believe Warriors like the single best thing that had happened in the modern history of the Warriors. It is incredible how quickly fortunes change. I mean, really like before 2001 like you would say the same thing for the Patriots. You would have said like getting absolutely demolished by the Chicago Bears was one of the greatest things to happen in your franchise's history. Remember that famous loss? Oh. How sweet it was. Remember when they put in their defensive tackle to score a touchdown on us? Oh, you know so good. The problem with that Utah Jazz team was, though, who was the second highest scorer on the team that year? That probably would have been AK-47. Oh. It was all-time already banned. Mehmet Okor. 
Of course, the oh, fatal fail. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that was Memento Core's all-star season. Terrific. Wow. Awful. Nothing good is allowed to happen to a team that has Memento Core on it. Well, I mean, so they did get the one game off the Spurs, which I do think it is now funny to think. Carlos Boozer won one more game against the Spurs in the playoffs than LeBron James did in Cleveland. That's hysterical. So maybe he did make the right decision. Perhaps with their powers combined, they could have won two games against <laughs> the Spurs. I think that's how we get to your, your 4-2 uh, adjustment, James, that you said. But coming off this year, Boozer is now really rolling and feel comfortable in the NBA. Uh, he's going to make the All-Star game for the second time. Going to repeat it as he also made it the previous season. Again, they're going to get the Rockets in the first round. They're going to beat them 4-2 this time before they're going to bow out to the Lakers in that 07-08 run where we got the Lakers-Celtics series. Before we come back for 08-09, it's time to head over to China, specifically Beijing, because Carlos Boozer was also on the 08 Redeem team. At least he, did, he, he got to be on one again after being on the most disgraceful one there was. I do it's, not think in a million years if you'd asked me to name the members of the 2008 men's Olympic team, I would have given you Carlos Boozer, though, so shots to him. Right, and, and that's one of the things that jumped out to most of me. Is like he, he's a two-time NBA All-Star who is also a two-time Team USA member. Seems impossible. Oh, wait, you know, is this when Coach K is still the coach of it? This is when Coach K was the coach. That's in it. 08. That's what it is. In 08, though. In 04, it was Larry Brown. Oh, no, for I mean, he's hot young stuff. But now, this time, it's, it's I'm just saying. No, I will always endorse any claims of Duke bias, personally. <laughs> Coach K is an overrated piece of shit. Anyway, 2008, 2009, the injury bug is going to strike again for Carlos Boozer. Something to be said for the fact that he's playing over the summer and then the next season, this is now two times coming back from the Olympics, that injuries catch up with them. He would have to get arthroscopic knee surgery, and he would end up missing 44 games that season. He would have a player option for the 09-2010 season, which he does, of course, opt into. I mean, coming off the injury, you want some stability, you want some security. And he has a really good bounce-back season for 2009-2010. He's going to average 19.5 points along with 11.2 rebounds, and he heads on into free agency. Made no such promises to Utah this time. Didn't give them any kind of commitments. And he's going to sign with the Chicago Bulls because for some reason they're offering him five years and $80 million. For a what, 30-something-year-old boozer at this point? Hey, 29-year-old Carlos <laughs> who's coming off arthroscopic knee surgery. His knees are 35, but he's 29. He actually, like... It's one of those where, on paper, his numbers look relatively fine. First year in Chicago, he averages 17.5 points with 9.6 boards. Both of those would be the best numbers that he'd post in Chicago. He starts every game that he plays while he's in Chicago, but increasingly evident, especially because this is in that transitionary phase of NBA where... The low post play is kind of being phased out and it's going to much more perimeter play. You need quickness to be able to hang. And especially coming off his knee surgery, Carlos Boozer just isn't able to hang on the defensive side at all. But he's still going to start every game that he's going to play in Chicago. Uh, he's going to last four seasons there, starts every single game. But going into the fifth season, the Bulls still had their amnesty, which they did 
used to say, holy <laughs> shit, why are we still paying Carlos Boozer 16 million? Let's get out of here. So now at the age of 33, Carlos Boozer is in a bit of a crossroads uh, in his NBA career. But the LA Lakers are absolutely desperate and floundering to try to get any talent around an Asian Kobe Bryant as he's heading down the end of his career. Or maybe they were tanking. Who knows? But I mean, they had Kobe, so they definitely weren't tanking. Don't ever say that the Lakers were tanking. They definitely weren't. Byron Scott was kept aboard because he was a good coach. Um, (laughs) Ancient Kobe needed to have 38 minutes a game. It was important for that team that that happened. It was incredibly important. But they decided, hey, we have room for one Carlos Boozer. He'll go there for his 12th season, 13th season, excuse me, in the NBA. Plays in 71 games, starts 26, averages 24 minutes still. Um, Still averaging double-digit points at 11.8 and uh, 6.8 boards to go with that. But by this time, it was very clear the game was passing him by. And in his last game in the NBA, Carlos Boozer would post 10 points and 6 rebounds in a 122-99 to loss to the Sacramento Kings. An unceremonious exit for an unceremonious man. But we do have a, a good postscript with Carlos Boozer. He would play a few games uh, for the Guangdong Southern Tigers in the Chinese Yeah, basketball. Guangdong. So he had some fun over there. He would also play in the Big Three. He was a co-captain of the Ghost Ballers. But more specifically, I want to I want to call back to I, I mentioned when Carlos Boozer declared for the NBA draft. He was just three classes away from graduating. In 2020, he decided to go back to Duke to finish off his degree. He did officially graduate in 2020. However, due to the COVID pandemic, it was not until just last year, May 8, 2022, when Carlos Boozer finally walked and officially attended his graduation ceremony and graduated from Duke University. So Carlos Boozer, the betrayal that if we are going by length of letter is about two and a quarter times worse than LeBron James's betrayal. Truly, on a more serious note, who knows what the NBA looks like in the late 2000s, early 2010s if Carlos Boozer chose to re-up and stay in Cleveland. Because I think that is a one-two punch that you could have built around. Maybe LeBron's game develops in a different way if he's trying to figure out how to fit next to Carlos Boozer. Because uh, point LeBron 10 years earlier. Which is just a terrifying concept. Truly, Carlos Boozer, definitely a guy in NBA circles. Never a great, but certainly a good. And Gordon Gunn's very uh, well-written letter. Didn't go skate earth, but just very calmly laid out the reasons why he felt hurt. By the betrayal of Carlos Boozer. It's intense. I it it will be a lot to work off both Duke and Mehmet Okor stink. But then he gets a little bit of comeuppance for it that like nothing quite goes super well for him after he does the betrayal. It's it's gonna be tough to top it, but if I may, I can give it a shot. Please. You know I love to start with a question. What do you guys think is the most famous hotel? The most the, the, famous the Ritz Carlton. The Ritz Carlton, what's your guess, Diaz? Um, Caesars. I think it's Watergate. I think Watergate is the world's most famous hotel. Anytime any scandal happens, we have to think about Watergate again. And we've got just an endless parade of Gamergates 
and nipple gates. And then in the sports world, you've got deflate gate and spy gate. How huh, weird that both of those are with the Patriots. Anyway. I feel like people don't even know that Watergate was a hotel, though. They just think of it as the name of the scandal. They don't realize it, that it was the Watergate Hotel where they broke into. It is, if I may, perhaps the Tim Hortons of hotels. <laughs> There's a list of over 500 scandals with the suffix gate, if you want to look it up on brand new polished Wikipedia. There's only one, though, that I'm concerned with today, and that is Bounty Gate. I want to talk about the architect behind Bounty Gate today, Greg Williams. Yay. I'm here for it, baby. To start with Greg Williams, we are going to go down to Missouri, to Excelsior Springs, Missouri, which was a town that was built around natural water and hot springs. And uh, it is just as a fun historic note, the town where Harry S. Truman, who's a Missouri native, he has the picture taken on Election Day 1948 with the Dewey Defeats Truman newspaper, with the early and erroneous calling of the election that year. In 1958, July 15th, born in this small town. He grows up in this very like 60s, post-war boomer, peak small town life. He's the quarterback. He goes to Northeast Missouri State University for college. So it was hard to find some of his college stats, but he's been inducted into the Northeast Missouri State University, now Truman State University Hall of Fame. And they do have some lines about his time as the quarterback there. Uh, (laughs) He somehow lettered three times Though they then say that he completed nearly 40 passes in three seasons with a pair of touchdowns. They were running the option. What do you want? What, what do you want? It, it says it's a run-heavy offense, but it just I, I'm shocked to find that a quarterback lettered three times with that kind of stats. He's also a two-time letter athlete for the Bulldogs in baseball as a first baseman. And he graduates in 1980 and he moves back home to become assistant high school head coach at his alma mater, Excelsior Springs. Then in 1983, after a couple years on the job, he is in the running for the most perfect completion to this small town Missouri football guy's life. He could possibly become the head coach of the high school where he played quarterback. (laughs) The dream is just within his grasp, and he is passed over in the very last round for that high school job. Brought in by the, the committee, they tell him that. And he thanks them for the favor. He's like, you know what? I want to coach the pros someday. And I would have stayed in this job forever. Moves instead to the Belton High School Pirates in the area right by where he went to college. And then just a couple of years after that, where he wins some titles with them in Missouri, he gets brought in to the University of Houston staff by Jack Pardee. After a couple of years, Pardee gets a job back in the pros and he brings them with him. They pack their bags. And they move across town in Houston to go join the Houston Oilers. Initially, starts out now in 1990 as the special team coach, but he gets taken under the wing of a beloved guy of ours, Buddy Ryan, molding him into the defensive assistant that he's going to become. Takes over those defensive coordinator duties once they move to Tennessee. This is where he starts to just develop this incredibly aggressive 4-3 offense. Defense. This is where he starts running his incredibly aggressive 4-3 defense. (laughs) He's got four down linemen, three linebackers, and he's kind of the proto-Wink Martindale now of being someone to just very early have cornerbacks and defensive backs crashing the line of scrimmage every single time. This is what helps propel them to the 2000 Super Bowl. He is there with Dr. Kevin Dyson, another beloved guy. As we all know, in his first trip, they come up short in that Super Bowl. 
The next year, he is the number two ranked defense by points. They give up only 191 over the entire season, 11.9 per game. That is enough for him to get a head coaching job with the Buffalo Bills. And uh, he's he's just not a very good head coach. They go 3-13 and 13 his first year. And then they make a giant trade for the newly available Drew Bledsoe from New England. Even with that big trade from him, they go 8-8. Eight and eight and finish fourth in a division where everyone else finishes nine and seven. Xavier, I don't know. Did the Jets make the playoffs that year? I believe that is the last time the Jets won the AFC East. You said that was 2000? This is 2002. 2002. Yeah, that's that's Chad Pennington's first season. Winning the AFC East, despite being tied with the Patriots and the Dolphins, and then they start off by beating the Colts 41-0 in the playoffs. Yep, I, that, that was that season. Well, unfortunately, that beautiful Jets success comes at the hands of Greg Williams having to finish fourth with an 8-8 record. While there is optimism the next year, they do start 2-0. In fact, the longtime play-by-play announcer, Van Miller, he's so sure that after the last Bills season and starting 2-0 this year, that they're going to have a chance to contend for the title. But he announces that it's going to be his final year and he's going to retire afterwards. And then they finish 6-10. <laughs> that is enough for Greg Williams to get fired. But he is a very hot commodity. And he is picked up by the Washington racial slurs, where he'll become their defensive coordinator, take back the reins of the position he's much better suited for. During this time, going to have a very kind of beloved player, friend, mentee in Sean Taylor. Sadly, Sean Taylor is going to get murdered here in 2007. The first play after that, Greg Williams runs with 10 men on the field for defense in honor of Sean Taylor. And they have an insane run after the Sean Taylor murder, which feels a little like fucked up to talk about. But just to put in perspective how good the Washington defense is this year, it is Adrian Peterson's rookie of the year season. They hold him to 27 yards that game against Minnesota late in the season. He is now expected to be named the head coach at the end of this run in Washington. Interviews with Dan Snyder four times, which sounds like a fate worse than death to me. For the second serendipitous time, he is passed over for a head coaching position, much like he was in Excelsior Springs. He gets fired. They bring on Jim Zorn. He has one completely unremarkable season in Jacksonville. And now because he's done with that and can move on to his next opportunity, he links up with the other person that we are concerned with, the Costello to his abbot, Sean Payton. <laughs> Sean Payton, much like our boy Greg Williams, grew up playing quarterback. When he gets to college at Eastern Illinois University, has a coach who is much more passing-based. They have the nickname Eastern Airlines at this time. He has a school record 509 yards that still to this day stands. And Tony Romo went there too. Yeah, like he's, Sean Payton, college-wise, excellent system quarterback. He does not really move up to the pro level all that much. He gets a little bit of time in the AFL and CFL. He does get to play in the NFL briefly. Do you know why? Why? Strike season. Because he's a scab in the Uh. 1987 strike season. During that time, by the way, he goes in three games, eight for 23 with 79 yards, no touchdowns, one interception that he throws against the New Orleans Saints. After this, he starts working his way up through the college ranks. Unlike Greg Williams, he's going to stay fixated on offense at San Diego State University, Indiana State University, Miami of Ohio, Illinois. He's like the running back coach sometimes, the quarterback coach sometimes, offensive coordinator. And finally, 
he gets to the pros and he becomes the Philadelphia quarterback coach for his first NFL position. Holds that job with the Eagles for a little bit and then holds that job with the Giants for becoming the Giants offensive coordinator ahead of the Super Bowl 35 run. So now he, like Greg Williams, is going to ride this strong offense that he has helped manage all the way to a Super Bowl. He's going to find that he doesn't have enough to get it done. It is still, to this day, the only Super Bowl in which the offense scored zero points. The only points <laughs> that the Giants scored in that game, 34-7 to against the Baltimore Ravens, was a kickoff return that was promptly responded to with another kickoff return. He decides, you know what? I know the guys are going to talk about this someday. I've hit the Eagles. I've hit the Giants. Greg Williams has Washington covered. Let's complete the NFC East bingo. He's going to join Dallas. Then he finally, after a little bit of time in Dallas, is going to get to where we are concerned with when he takes the open head coaching position with the New Orleans Saints, the absolutely moribund franchise immediately following Hurricane Katrina. So taking maybe the worst team in the NFL already at the lowest point in its city's history. It's safe to say there is some weight on Sean Payton's shoulders. Despite this weight, for the very first year, he is the number one ranked offense by yards immediately. This is partially because of him and because of the big acquisition that he spearheaded with the team, bring on disaffected and kind of cast off Chargers quarterback Drew Brees over to the franchise. So the two of them are incredibly successful. They get the second ever division title at the time for the Saints, and they win their first two playoff games in franchise history. They had not won a single playoff game since 1967 when they were founded. Two in the first year with Peyton and Breeze going all the way to the NFC Championship game when they lose to the Bears, who then go on to lose to the Indianapolis professional football team in the Super Bowl. The next two years, they remain top four in yardage, but they go 7-9 and 8-8. Eight and eight. Despite this big offense, Sean Payne cannot keep the other teams from putting points on the board. There is a missing piece that he needs, and he looks just a little bit across the Gulf, and he sees over there in a terrifying part of Northern Florida the exact missing piece that he needs, and it is Greg Williams. I thought you were just going to say, like, Florida man. He only has the one season, but Greg Williams definitely has some Florida man tendencies to him. <laughs> it, it would have been appropriate in many ways, I think, if he'd stayed in that state longer. But no, he was destined, I think, to come join Sean Payton down in the bayou. Because Williams is so highly sought after, Sean Payton like has to get into the dirt a lot to get him over to the team. After the interview with him, he's just raving about how badly he wants him to like. He's so impressive. He's so prepared. Sean Payton offers to take a $250,000 pay cut on the spot to like help facilitate hiring him. Do want to point out Sean Payton was making somewhere in the range of seven to $8 million a year. So it's not like that much, but the story is repeated like anywhere where you read about the hiring, which was huge for them. They had been ranked 23rd in yards and 26th in points the year before on defense. And Sean Payton, in his own words, he wanted a nasty defense. That's what he kept coming back to as he told Greg Williams kind of his vision. The offense for the 2009 Saints, it's as stellar as ever. They have uh, their first ever season scoring more than 500 points. And the defense, in some ways on the surface, might look middle of the pack, but they're incredibly good under the numbers at doing two things. They have a lot of turnovers, second in the league with 35, and just bone-crunching hits, which gets some national attention, particularly as we get to the NFC Conference Championship game that year against the Vikings. Brett Favre gets, to put it mildly, the ever-loving piss beaten out of him in this he, cha he, conference championship. He, he, he deserved it. 
because of what he did with the literal year before when he took an eight and three Jets team and then they didn't make the playoffs and then he promptly retired just to unretire, go to the Vikings without any sort of compensation to the Jets. That well, is I, the worst thing that Brett Favre did. <laughs> I agree, Xavier. At least yeah, to, Xavier. in the state of New York. <laughs> yeah, okay, with that qualification, sure, that is the worst thing that Brett Favre did in the state of New York. I want to say right now, I don't know if any of the allegations against him for sexual misconduct took place in the state of New York. So they do, very literally, crush Brett Favre. He, he, the commentators are saying like, hey, Brett Favre's taking some pain here. Whether or not he deserves it is not up for debate necessarily, but he took some big hits. Eventually, the knockout blow is delivered on a kick that goes on to change NFL overtime rules. But it is a kick that sends the New Orleans Saints into the Super Bowl going to be the second bite at the apple for both Greg Williams and Sean Payton here in Super Bowl 44 is against the Indianapolis professional football team. I love thinking back on this season, remembering as both of these teams, I believe went 12 and 0 before either lost their first game, something absurd like that. Just incredible to see like two that were so clearly the best all year. And here they were. And here was Sean and Greg's chance together to overcome the obstacle that each had failed at before. It is, I think, quite appropriate that the dagger play is a defensive turnover and a pick six as India's down 24-17 driving with a chance to tie it. No, that pick six comes all the way back to make it 31-17 with just a couple minutes left in the fourth quarter. And after those minutes tick off, the confetti falls and Greg Williams and Sean Payton are Super Bowl champions. It is... This is the point where the romance starts to stumble a little bit. You know, the flames that burn bright as it did for these two, too often burn quite quickly. Well, much like his mentor, Buddy Ryan, with Mike Ditka, once you finally get the Super Bowl, now who gets the credit for the Super Bowl? And that's like Sean Payton immediately in these times afterwards starts to refer to him as a rogue coach. I think much as you could say was similar in the relationship between Buddy Ryan and Mike Ditka. The next year, the defense gets better. They are now top seven in points and yards. Fewer turnovers, but they are just as aggressive and hard-hitting still. Still getting a lot of attention for quite how hard-hitting they are. But then they lose the wild card round. And this offseason is when the whispers start coming out that the NFL is looking into some things that they've been made aware of related to the New Orleans Saints. This, the whispers kind of quickly come out. It is likely about bounties, what they often refer to as non-contract bonuses in official NFL language. This scrutiny, you know, this weight on the franchise's shoulders, all of that on Greg Williams' mind. They go 13-3 and the next year, but the defense is really starting to collapse. At this point, Peyton and Williams are no longer directly in contact with one another. Sean Peyton has basically hired a coach, Joe Vitt, to be the linebacker's coach and also the person that talks between <laughs> Greg Williams and Sean Payton. So it's not a good working relationship that the two have. He fought to get this guy on this team. And after another loss in the divisional round this time to the 49ers, it's just, it's unsustainable. That's the Kaepernick 49ers, by the way, just to keep us in timeline. The contract's over. All the scuttlebutt is that he's going to go join his old friend, Jeff Fisher, from the Tennessee Titans. He's going to go play with him with the Rams now. Then the investigation concludes. And on March 4th, 2012, the league reveals that there had officially been an illegal bounty fund that was managed by Greg Williams during his Saints tenure. Again, this is a non-contract bonus, which is any kind of money paid to players, unsanctioned pools for essentially causing injuries. 
The investigation stated that the system was put in place like right after his arrival. And this goes back. He traces it back to when Peyton told him, hey, I need a nasty defense. And so he starts you know, getting a number of players and coaches involved. 22 to 27 players. They're all paying into this fund. Some of it's for innocent stuff, like $100 for any of the special teamers downing it inside the 20. It is $1,000 if a player you hit gets carted off. It is 1500 bucks <laughs> if you knock out a player in that conference championship game against the Vikings. It was uh, it is reported that it was $10,000 to knock Favre out of the game. That money was funded directly by Reggie Bush's agent and linebacker Joe Vilma. $10,000 to knock out Favre. Wait, Joe Vilma or Jonathan Vilma? Jonathan Vilma. My apologies. Thank you. Because okay, I was going to say, that that is the first jersey I ever I, had. I'm mixing him up with Joe Vitt the guy that was hired to talk between Greg Williams and Sean Payton. Not sure if we <laughs> talked about the part where a head coach wouldn't speak to his defensive coordinator long enough. I love how Reggie Bush, presumably, I think this is the timeline when they started taking his Heisman away. And he was like, fuck it, you guys can take my Heisman away. I'm just going full villain. <laughs> so the NFL was initially alerted to this almost immediately after the Saints Super Bowl. And there was an offensive assistant, Mike Carullo, who got fired by the team, which is kind of bitter. And then in 2017, after doing this, uh, Mike Rule becomes a director of football administration in the NFL. So that's not shady at all, nor is it shady that he is now the athletic director at Princeton after being the whistleblower for this. Ever since the offseason following that Super Bowl, the investigation been going on. Williams was clearly not only a participant, but the ringleader. And Peyton was very much implicated as having no. Like they had all of this tape on him. Of, you know, I'm mad about this. I'm Sean Payton. Shut this down. But well, like, <laughs> obviously he also knew what was going on. And they have him saying that over a decent stretch of time where one would think the head coach, if he was actually trying to stop this, would have enough authority to stop it. They get particularly mad about the fact that Greg comes out, uh, eventually cops to everything in February of this year, right before it comes out. So he goes equivalent of state's witness, league's witness, I guess gives them everything that they need to like implicate the full org, not just himself. And so that Sean Payton told Greg Williams what he wanted from him. And Greg Williams felt betrayed by doing exactly what he thought was the intention. And then Sean Payton felt betrayed by Greg Williams. It's a nasty knot between the two. And while they're going to split here, they'll still weave together another couple of times. Greg, he is suspended indefinitely but he could apply for reinstatement as early as the next year. Payton is the very first coach in modern NFL history to ever receive a season-long suspension to finish out all of the rest of the punishments. Mickey Loomis suspended for eight games, and Joe Vitt, because he was clearly aware of everything that was happening, <laughs> was suspended for six. There is some reports of them going after specific players like Michael Crabtree and trying to tackle his ACL, Vernon Davis and trying to tackle his ankle, Kick returner Kyle Williams trying to go for a headshot because he had a history of concussions. A lot of talk about litigation. Someone who had a lot to say about litigation was BYU law graduate Steve Young. He was very vocal about how players should be getting their money about being hit. But even with all of this evidence, no litigation happens. Like Greg Williams pretty much gets away with Bounty Gate. And then after sitting out for this year, he applies for reinstatement. And they're like, yeah, you know what? Because you're such a good state's witness. Time off for good behavior. Why don't you go ahead and join your buddies back in Tennessee? And he's going to become the defensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. 
again. After that year, because he's, you know, waited two years, he gets the job that he was going to get all the time before Bounty Gate. He goes and joins Jeff Fisher with the Rams and gets to be their defensive coordinator for a little bit, <laughs> truly proving that there are no consequences for his actions whatsoever. This is, is something that kind of lingers with me because Bounty Gate happened. Like, what did you expect, man? It is kind of one of the first times that I think the viciousness of football becomes a little bit more, if not obvious, obviously ignored in the face of its obviousness. While Greg is floundering around in these middling jobs with Tennessee and the Rams during periods of not a lot of success for those franchises, Peyton is also struggling a little bit. He has that one year where he coaches his son's high school football team, has a great offense with this high school football team, unsurprisingly. It's Sean Payton running against a bunch of high schoolers. But you know what? At the end, there is another high school football team whose offense he cannot solve. They lose their last regular season game. And then they lose to that exact same team. They stimmy him twice because Sean Payton does not have that defensive mastermind whispering in his ear anymore that he needed. You come around the next couple years for the Saints and they are consistently a top 10 offense. They are a top 10 offense in yardage for Sean Payton's first 13 years as a head coach. But over and over, they've got these playoff breakdowns where they just can't stop the other team from scoring when they need to. There is a moment where the two, they come together on opposite sides. There's a meeting between the Saints and the Rams on November 27th, 2016. The Saints host the Rams. Maybe it's a chance for the two to let bygones be bygones, bury the hatchet, put this all behind them, and maybe intimate towards a future together where they can again reach that mountaintop. No, Sean Payne decides he's going to embarrass the shit out of Greg Williams. He is not over that stuff that happened. Sean Payton and his Saints put up the most yards on any Greg Williams defense in a non-overtime game in his career with 555. Final score is 49 to 21. 50 of those yards are from a Drew Brees to Willie Sneed flea flicker. It is just one of the most disrespectful offensive showings by a team over an opponent at cruel Sean Payton, we talked about last week. We like to see a big middle finger every once in a while. I know I'm here talking about Greg Williams. Sean <laughs> Payton gets a very good middle finger on Greg Williams. That's very fun. Focusing on Greg as we kind of round his career out. Again, he is never going to reach that mountaintop because he's with the Rams. But before the Rams can reach the Super Bowl, when Sean McVay comes in, he kicks everyone from Jeff Fisher's staff to the curb. So Greg Williams, where he's going to catch on? Nowhere better but the Hugh Jackson Browns. Am I right? Gets to enjoy some just more miserable losing. And then does, following Jackson's firing, get to be the head coach for a little bit again. He's the head coach of the Browns for eight games. And when he leaves them after that, because he is again passed over for a head coaching position, he becomes the first Browns head coach since Marty Schottenheimer in 1988 to leave the team with a winning record as coach. And then where does he go, James? He goes to the Jets. And for the Jets, he has a final swan song. I'm not going to say anything about his first season with the Jets, Savior. But I do want to talk about his last game with the Jets. Yes, yes. This game that made me so irrationally angry, even though I wanted them to lose the game. The Jets were playing the Raiders. They were leading, playing the game. The Raiders set up for an obvious Hail Mary pass. We're like fucking 0-12 at this point, too, to be clear. Oh, yeah. No, they're in the middle of a spectacular tank. This was the tank for Trevor Lawrence that failed, and then we ended up with Zach Wilson instead. But at this point, we were still winless. And in this moment, they remain winless. Because you know what Greg Williams loves? An aggressive 4-3 defense. And Greg Williams 
sends the house after Derek Carr on this Hail Mary heave, which sails through the air into the hands of Henry Ruggs, giving the Raiders the last minute win, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And the next day, Greg Williams is roundly fired from the New York. It was a cover zero all-out blitz from midfield on a obvious Hail Mary. <laughs> it was the dumbest goal ever to the point where Jets fans, okay, we appreciate the commitment to the tank, but you made it so obvious you had to be fired for, like, failure of sporting integrity. You could have blitzed without calling a cover zero, but no, he just wanted to make it obvious that, hey, if you throw the ball in the air... There's no one there to stop this track star who will then go on to kill people from catching it. And you know what? To think that if Greg Williams hadn't been passed over for a head coaching position that he was favored to take for a third time, you wouldn't have gotten to have that beautiful moment that eventually led you to uh, the the savior of the franchise. To nothing whatsoever. But no, I mean, that is the end of Greg Williams' NFL career for now. Shortly thereafter, Sean Payton ends his NFL career, neither of them having, again, reached those heights. Do have to give him credit for one final epilogue, Greg Williams, guy that he is, is going to be the defensive coordinator for the D.C. Defenders next season. He will be the D.C. Defenders D.C., leading the D.C. Defenders defense. What a way for the guy to go out. Greg Williams, my guy for this week. Anytime you can end the presentation in a tongue twister, I'm on board. I'm a big fan of that. (laughs) No, and, and this is Greg with uh, three G's, correct? Or if you include the first, in the way that Gullible has three there, L's, yes. There are three G's. I don't know if he upgraded when everyone else was going to four G. Maybe we can find out if we induct him. I, I certainly am a fan of Greg Williams, I have to say. I was, like, Carlos Boozer's got a great story. But man, I wasn't kidding about that Duke and Memento course stink. It, it is wafting over here. Look, there's no arguments there, and I'm certainly wasn't trying to pander. I mean, I hate Duke, so like you can imagine how tough this was for me. But when I learned of the letter, I was so tickled <laughs> because, like, the fact that there's two of these letters in their franchise's history, the fact that as a Cleveland sports fan, you can say, hey, do you remember when the Cavs owner wrote that long letter because a guy left in free agency? And you need to say, which one? I love that so much. Um, that is pretty good. Couldn't agree more. In terms of like, just like the pure betrayal aspect, I mean, the Mayu Sova story has it all. Telemundo could not dare to put together a novella as epic as the ballad of Mayu Sova. I can't disagree with that. One argument I think we've bandied about a couple times here is that sometimes... There are guys who rely so thoroughly on the stories of other guys involved in them. And like part of the reason that I love the story of Maya is because I love the character of like Pasha so very, very much. That's true. It's, it, like Pasha, she, Pasha she sucks. carries a lot of the weight of it. That's of course though, we're speaking about rivalry. You know, I fully acknowledge you're gonna have to dwell on that. We all dwell on the rivals for a bit here. You dwelled on You gotta be betrayed by somebody or something. Exactly. So exactly. And I gotta give my credit. She's probably easily, actually, the most blameless person involved in a betrayal here. Like, Greg Williams and Sean Payton, it goes both ways. No one's blameless there. And then Carlos Boozer, nah, that's a knife right in Cleveland's back. But uh, Maya does come out with her nose fully clean. But 
we could then turn around and say, is that points against? Because the category is supposed to be top betrayals. So to me, like that implies the person who is doing the betraying. Fair. Fair enough. That's I don't know if I agree with that because a betrayal is the act. It can not like, I didn't say like betrayee or betrayer. No, that's right. You didn't specify maybe that is just. Was but I do my... like all three stories. I do want to say yeah. I like all, that's, I like that's all three stories. That's just where your mind went to first with betrayal. You immediately had to think of someone who did someone else dirty. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe that just more speaks to me. So I'm, I'm not saying it's <laughs> <You're> disqualifying. <laughs> your soul is just a little blacker. <laughs> I acknowledge the difficulty of me trying to make a pitch for someone that did pay other people to injure people. Like, that is a crime, and it's bad. I was about to make the argument that football basically made, which is, hey, man, that's football. And then I didn't (laughs) think that those words would feel so good in my mouth. That's showbiz, baby. It is, I think, really telling how nothing came of Bounty Gate. Like, no players really got payouts from it. Greg Williams got fired mid-season for blowing coverage during an obvious tank. People knew that this investigation was going on for, like, two years. And Greg Williams was not fired mid-season at any point for that. It's just because everyone assumed that they probably want to injure the good players on a team. The fact that there was a bounty for it is maybe like one step too far, but not anything that really is surprising to anybody. The only reason that they would do anything about it is to make it seem like they're not condoning that when who amongst them is not thinking about hurting the opposing stars. It is that if someone says it out loud, you're like, no, shut up. <laughs> it's like, it's the unwritten rules, fucker. Also, I mean, hey, if we don't have Greg Williams... We don't have the Kevin James, Sean Payton biopic with Taylor Lautner that is uh, a dramatic retelling of his one season coaching his son's high school football team. Ooh, ooh, okay, that might swing it. What do you think it's like to be the high school football coach that beat Sean Payton twice? I mean... He probably has that, like, a man cave with, like, a local paper printout of that. Plastered. Like, it's the actual wallpaper. Yeah, I mean, my poor family would never hear the end of it. The more I think about Sean Payton as I talk about Greg Williams here, I think I'm doing away with the only argument I really had against Maya because I'm now thinking about it. The person that they are intertwined with, and that is the whole point of this. Otherwise, you could not write a soap opera. They've been trying to write soap operas as good as this for, what, six or seven decades at this point. And then they just did the dang thing in Soviet Russia. So I think I'm leaning Maya. I think I'm there. Also, I'm leaning Maya, too, just because I, I love that story so much. I love that it was a Wolfgang Puck restaurant where she grabbed her hair and smashed her against the bar. There's many good tiny details. A brawl broke out at the Wolfgang Puck restaurant. <laughs> yeah, well, with this being the case, you know, in Soviet Russia, novella tells you, uh, and in Soviet Russia, they have some incredible drama going on in real life. They don't need any TV shows. But what they do need is to make a spot in the Hall of Guy for everybody's favorite love trianglist and ice dancer, Maya Valentinovna Usova. And that's Russian for guy, baby. <laughs> Wowed by that translation ability, because I certainly don't know any Russian. And I've only said true things. Well, it is indeed true that we are happy to welcome Maya to the Hall 
and we are happy to have had you all welcome us into your ear holes once again. Thank you for listening to another episode. Thank you for listening to the lovely theme music by our good friend, Don Ham. Thank you to producer Craig Bott for recording all of our lovely audio. Uh, I'm so glad that Greg Roman's not the offensive coordinator for the Ravens anymore. I really hope they bring back Lamar Jackson. I just, it would represent such an organizational failure that I don't think they will allow it to happen. I don't think I can root for a team that fucks up having Lamar Jackson. And I will, I all season I thought that he was going to leave, but now that we're actually here, I think that they're going to like, they'll find the way to do right by him. Yeah, I, I was too afraid to ever bring up anything about the Jets trading for Lamar Jackson because it might kill you and me. But now I don't think it's going to happen. Oh, this show will end. This show will immediately end. There will be no more of this show if the Jets trade for Lamar Jackson. Let me make that perfectly clear. So I'm glad that this is not going to be a thing anymore. Well, if you guys have nothing else that's a thing right now, then I've been James. I've been the very special guest and Ice Dance fan, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Colonel Jessup said in A Few Good Men, you can't handle the guy. <laughs>